Jesus. Let's turn to Luke 10, 25 through 28, and, uh, and we'll read this text together. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We even do that at Sundays at 6, and let's read this out loud together so you know I'm not making it up. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Please be seated. The NIV translation that we read together says an expert in the law, but it is right to call this man a lawyer. We think of lawyers, though, as those who are uh, professionals and uh, very knowledgeable about secular law. We don't think of a lawyer kind of like within the religious world. But remember back in the ancient Jewish culture, I mean, there was only one law. There was a law of God, and that was the law. And so if you were an expert on the law, you were a lawyer. And even in the same way um, that people were accused of breaking the law, within perhaps the Sanhedrin, these lawyers would be either defending or prosecuting based upon their, their professional knowledge of the law and the midrash, which would be kind of a complementary uh, resource. That would be kind of the commentary, the rabbinic commentary on the law, as well as kind of the case studies of where the law had been actually practiced and tried out in uh, real-life situations over the ages. So this lawyer uh, would have been pretty pretty well-respected gentleman. And uh, in verse 25, we understand that, that he stood up to address Jesus, and he called Jesus teacher. And both of these were signs of respect. But Luke jumps right immediately to an explanation so that we're not fooled. We know exactly what this guy's about. Luke tells us this man stood up to test Jesus. He's not really asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's not asking a question because he's really eager to, to discern you know, spiritual truths. He's asking a question to see how Jesus is going to answer. And he's going to ask a question to see how Jesus is going to utilize the law. If he ignores the law, discards it, or he interprets it incorrectly, then it gives the lawyer an opportunity to, uh, to discredit Jesus in a public setting. So the lawyer begins this dialogue. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we get to what, how Jesus responds to this, I just want to hit the pause button because this is pretty cool. I mean, let me just point out something that's incredibly obvious. Everywhere you go all around the world today, people are still asking this question. This is the billion-dollar question, and I don't want you to miss that just because we're in a story about a lawyer testing Jesus. He's actually asking the question we all want to know the answer to, isn't he? People want to know what happens when I die. People want to know, will I be able to go to a good place with good people, with a good God, and will I, or, you know, will I at least maybe come back as a good person and not you know, a sheep or a cow or something? And, uh, and when, when we're looking at the grave or we're with somebody who's got a, you know, a terminal sickness or somebody who's died in an accident, we want to know that our loved ones are okay. We want to know how can we know that they're going to be okay. And so this is a hugely, hugely important question. So I just want you to put yourself into the text today and, and just see how you're going to answer this question. If I came to you and I said, what must we do to inherit eternal life? How are you going to answer that question? What's your answer to that question? Do you know? I mean, it's a really important question, don't you think? And now, what would you base that answer upon? 
what, what would be your source of information? And how would you know that you could trust that source of information? I mean, because you're kind of betting your life on it, actually. Most people, I think, in today's society, if you ask them, and I've asked lots of people this question just to kind of see what they'd say, uh, most people will say something like this. They'll say, well, I, yeah, I believe there's a heaven. And, and I'll say something like, well, do you think you're going there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, why, are you, why do you think you're going to heaven? I just think, you know, that it's important that, you know, that we're, you know, try to be good people and that you're kind to others and try to help people. And I, I just think that if you're a good person, then you'll go to heaven when you die. And then I'll ask something like, well, why do you think that? Well, that's just what I believe. And that's the end of the conversation most of the time. People don't really want to go any further than that. That's just what I believe. I just believe it's right and it feels right to me. And I just think if you're generally a good person and, and you try to be as good as you can and help other people, you go to heaven when you die. Then you'll have some people who are kind of religious and they'll throw God in there. They'll say, I believe God will accept anybody who tried their best and did as well as they could to be nice to others and help others, which is basically the exact same answer, except we just threw God in there to kind of sound religious, which is to say that good people will go to heaven. And you know what? It's, it's very common. In fact, all the world's religions, with the exception of Christianity, actually in some form or another teach this doctrine to be true, that there's a good God, and God likes good people, and God is in a good place. So if you want to be with God, you have to be good. So you can be with good people, with a good God, in a good place, right? And, and that's, that's not what Christianity says, but that's what all the other world religions say, all right? Here's where the problem always comes, though, in all these world religions. If you really dig in and you try to understand, okay, okay, well, maybe this is true. So what is good, and what's that based upon? Amazingly, so many, you know, kind of want to point back and use the Christian Bible. We can't use that because the Christian Bible doesn't say good people go to heaven. Uh, but there are some other texts that, that people can refer to. Uh, but sometimes these sources are not really clear in telling us what's actually good and what's not, what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. Some are a little better than others, but here's where they all break down. Here's where the problem always is, and that is this question. Well, how good is good enough? Andy Stanley wrote a book by that title. We give it away as a free gift. I encourage you to pick it up and read it because it really is just the ultimate question, isn't it? If you're walking around this world thinking that good people go to heaven, then the really huge, huge question is, how good is good enough? And in some way, this guy is asking that question. What must we do? What's the prerequisite? I mean, is it 51% good works gets you in and over 49% bad? Do you just have to, is it, or is it more like school where it's like 70% is passing? Is it a sliding scale? Am I being compared to every person who's ever lived? Am I being compared to people in my country? Am I being compared to people in my religion? Am I being compared to people on my street? I mean, where's the sliding scale? I mean, I know I'm at least better than that group of people but probably not that group of people. I mean, how do you know, right? This is a hugely important question, and it's really a universal question, but I want to also show you that it's a uniquely Jewish question. Let me show you why. Listen to what he says. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How many of you have ever inherited anything? Have, you, have any of you inherited a lot? I just... Want to know we have a capital campaign? <laughs> Just invite you to lunch or something? No? All right. Do, do you have to do anything to inherit 
stuff? I mean, in other words, I mean, is there, do you earn the status of being an inheritor of things? Not really. I mean, who inherits stuff? Family, right? You inherit your, your genes from your family, uh, you, you know, certain traits and qualities. Uh, you know, hopefully we inherit a little trust fund from our grandparents, right? We, we inherit our height, our teeth, our skin color from our family's origin. What an odd question. What must I do to, you know, to inherit eternal life? Why didn't he say, what must I do to earn eternal life? That's not what he said. He said inherit. Why would he use that word? Well, because this lawyer is really not asking how he can earn his salvation. He's asking, what must I do to ensure that I'm in the family? What must I do to ensure that I'm in the covenant, that, that this promise that God has made, that I'm included in it? An inheritance is not earned. It's freely given from the one who owns something to those whom are the designated or natural recipients. So the lawyer is familiar with the covenant language of the, of the Hebrew Bible, of our Old Testament, that God chose the Israelites to be family. He chose them. They didn't choose him, just like we don't choose our parents or our grandparents. God chose the Israelites to be his family, and he chose to bless them with this land, but his expectation would be that they'd be faithful within the covenant relationship. It's all God's choosing and God's initiative, but he, he's defining who family is, and he's giving this inheritance. And so like many Jews in the first century, this lawyer is kind of assuming that God's covenant promise extends beyond just this life and this piece of land. It extends into eternal life. And so he's asking this question, how can I ensure that I'm going to get my inheritance? How can I ensure that I won't get excommunicated from the family? What must I do to stay in the good blessings of God so that I get my share of the inheritance that was promised to our family? But, you know, there's a subtlety here, isn't there, of this Jewish question, and that is an assumption, and here it is, that no one outside the Jewish family has any hope of eternal life, only those in the family who are in good standing, and that's going to be critically important as we move through this story. So the lawyers ask this very loaded question, and Jesus knows it, and this is how Jesus replies. Well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? He doesn't actually say that. I spiced that up a little bit. But that's kind of the picture that I, that I get from the text. He, he literally says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which has a double entendre to it if you're a part of the first century Jewish audience, which you're not, so I'll just bring you in on that. You see, they would read the, 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 the law of God out loud. It was a regular practice in everybody's homes. The children would grow up reading the law out loud. When they went into the Jewish synagogue, they would read the law out loud. And so when he says, how do you read it? He's not just saying, how do you understand it? He's saying, how have you been reading it your whole life? And, uh, and this, is, this is really important for two reasons. Number one, Jesus is, is not going to say something new. You know, in, 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 the, in the kind of the liberal, Christian, amorphous world out there, there's so many people who really think that Jesus gives us a, a hall pass from the law of God, that Jesus says something brand new that, you know, kind of makes the Old Testament and all the laws of God just inconsequential, just doesn't matter anymore. But if you actually read what Jesus said, he always points back to the law of God. And he says things like, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Not one dot and tittle will pass from the law before it is fully fulfilled. And he refers to the word of God constantly as authoritative and true. You see, this is a big deal. 
If he had said something just totally new, just said, you know, forget everything that you know, it, it has nothing to do with the law of God, and here's, here's the deal. I'm just going to forgive everybody. None of the law matters. That, that's not what he said. And, and So if you think that you can somehow get away from the conviction of God's law and God's word being true by something that you think you know about Jesus, I, I think you err in that way. Now, the lawyer is not impressed. I think he begins to smile a little bit because he's right in his wheelhouse. Let's talk about the law. I came here to talk about the law. I spent a lot of money to talk about the law. I know all about the law. I was number one in my Torah school. He's ready for this. He's totally prepared to talk about the law. And so what he does, very eloquently in front of all of his dearest friends, he just recites what everybody, every good Jew would be able to recite by heart, and that's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all everything, right? And then love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this was common knowledge. This was famous passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And... Um, you know, probably all the Jews that are standing around there kind of quietly give a little golf clap, maybe a little amen, and they're kind of, oh man, our boy's on a roll now. He got that one right, right? And, and Jesus, very calmly, I, I'm sure, just kind of nods with approval and says, you know, well done, good. You got that right. You answered correctly. Just do this, and you will live. <laughs> all right. So the lawyer asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus points to the answer he just gave. It says, do this, and you will live, both now and forever. So let me just paraphrase kind of what, this, this, what Jesus just said, okay? It's, like, it's really quite simple. Love God with every ounce of your being, with every thought, with every desire, with every action, with every breath. In your labors, in everything you lay your hand to, do it out of love for God. Make God your goal your first love, your literal identity, and your singular source of joy. And then, as a result of your unadulterated love of God, love your neighbor with the same kind of unconditional forgiving and protecting love that you extend to yourself. Just do this, and you will live. Now, the verb used here in the Greek is in the future middle indicative, which literally means you will live in such a way as it benefits you. You will secure living for yourself. I mean, you get the middle voice, right? Okay, a little Greek 101. The Greeks had the active voice, the middle voice, and the passive voice. The middle voice always benefited the one who was taking the action. For example, when we're in college, we say, I will enroll in biology class, right? That's the future middle indicative, which is, I will enroll, and as a result, I will be enrolled. It, the, the, the action will benefit myself. If I will enroll my sister in a class, that's active, and if my sister enrolled me in the class, that's passive. So we know exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you're asking how, you know, you can benefit by eternal life. Do this and you will benefit. Do this and you will live. Very powerful. Now, what is the opposite of this, you know, future middle indicative, do this and you will live? What, what would be the opposite of this? Let me, let me try. Don't do this and you will die. Don't do this and you won't live. Fail to do this, and you don't have any hope of eternal life. See, there's a strong little message in there, right? Now, think about this. If you're the lawyer, how are you feeling right now with that answer? First of all, you were trying to corner him, but he made your answer his answer. So you can't critique his use of the law. 
right? And then secondly, your answer, that he made his answer, is an impossible answer. It's an impossible answer. I mean, who can actually love God totally, completely, without blemish, without ceasing, in every situation, every day of their lives, always? Who can do that? No one can do that. Who can actually love their neighbor with that same kind of unconditional, give yourself the first, you know, of everything, always take care of yourself first? Who can love their neighbor that way all the time, completely, without exception, every day in every circumstance? Nobody. You see, had the lawyer been really asking this question with humble sincerity, had he actually been wanting to seriously know how to inherit eternal life, at this point we would expect him to fall down on his face and just raise his hands and say, well, who then can be saved? Remember, we're going to see this when we get, many of you kind of know as as we look ahead into Luke, when Jesus says, I tell you not a... I mean, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. And his disciples just cry out and say, well, who then can be saved? That would be the appropriate response to what Jesus just said. Do this and you will live. But I can't. Nobody can. That would be the appropriate response. But he's not really asking a question, this lawyer. He's so full of himself. He's trying to justify himself that he'll go on and ask Jesus, well, who then is my neighbor? You know, and kind of... That goes on next week. Come back next week. We'll get to that part of the story. But I want to marinate in this part just a little bit longer because it's so, so important. Okay, go back to where we started. The average person in the world believes that good people go to heaven. I mean, we have to be good, or at least we have to be gooder than 49% of the world's population so that when we die, we'll go to heaven or we'll come back as something other than a goat. That may be what other world religions teach. But just in case someone mentioned to you before you came in here today that all world religions basically say the same thing, basically point to the same God, let me just point out to you that the Christian Bible, this thing that we think is authoritative, says totally something different. And did you hear anything that said about being a good person? No. Jesus answered the question you are asking and all of your friends are asking. And here's what he said in Luke 10, verse 28. We just read it. He said, do this. Love God totally, completely, always, and completely, always, totally love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, and you will live. You will secure eternal life. That's what you need to do. That's what must be done. Here's what is required for the possibility of eternal life versus eternal death. Perfect love. Jesus wasn't toying with the lawyer. He wasn't trying to be smart or to dodge the question. Jesus answered the question precisely and with crystal clarity in absolute accordance with God's revealed word. Perfect love earns eternal life. Perfect love. Now, misdirected love, imperfect love, does not earn eternal life. Do you know that imperfect, misdirected love is defined in the Bible? You know what it's called? It's called idolatry. Paul says it's loving the creation versus loving the creator, and it is punishable by death. Ten Commandments, same deal, right? Not loving your neighbor, murdering, stealing, coveting, adultery. Jesus makes it, if you're even angry with your brother, if you even call him a fool, your penalty would be the fires of hell. I mean, a just God has to punish imperfect love. 
when what is required for eternal life is perfect love. So here's the problem we're left with this morning. If perfect love is required for eternal life and none of us are capable of perfect love, what hope do any of us have for eternal life? You're saying, well, I'm just not going to be Christian. I'm just going to be some other world religion, and I'm, I'm just going to go with the other alternative, and that is just to be good or gooder, even though I'm never going to know how good is good enough, but it sounds better than the Christian way because that sounds like I don't have any hope at all. Mm. You know, Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death, and I've quoted that to you. I mean, it is. Sin is a serious business. And Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not a very bright outlook. But see, there's a second half to Romans 6.23 that's so, so important. It says, for the wages of sin, of misdirected, imperfect love is death. Here's the second half of the verse. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift. You see, had this lawyer had any clue who he was talking to, he would have repented and fallen on his face and begged for mercy and repentance from the gift because that's the very one who he's talking to. Standing there on that dusty road is the only chance that man or any of us ever have of receiving eternal life because this one, this Jesus Christ, will be the only person ever born of a woman who will actually accomplish perfect love, the only one who loved God so much and loved people so much that he was willing to give all he had, even his very life, so that those who were perishing might be rescued, that the justice of God would not be bypassed, it would be fulfilled, so that those who didn't have a chance because of their imperfect love, regardless of race, tribe, gender, culture, people who were dead might be rescued and be made alive forever. That's the gospel, you see. Imperfect people need to be forgiven. And so, you know, when the gospel is proclaimed and when this tension happens in your life, when you've been testing God, when you've been testing the scriptures, and you've been testing Jesus saying, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because I've been pretty good. You see, there's a response that is required from you, and it should not be the response of this haughty lawyer. Because you really do need to ask that question, not just to see if somebody can give you the answer that you're looking for, but because you really need to know. Perfect love is required, and you can't do it. And what that will lead you to is an awareness of your sin. It'll lead you to an awareness of the fact, man, I can't, I can't do this. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you come away and say, I can't do this. And that's exactly right. You see, the law of God is there to show us that there is good and there is bad. There is right, there is wrong. There is just and there is unjust. And that the God that we love, that we worship, is the God who is the God of all goodness and all justice. And when we are compared to him and his standards and his law, we are weighed and we are found wanting, all of us. And so what that does is it drives us to our knees and our response should be, who then shall be saved? Because I know it's not going to be me. And that leads to repentance, where we hate our sin. We hate that we, we fail at loving people. We fail at loving God. We fail at loving our wives and our, our husbands and our children. We fail. And Jesus knew this. God knew this. This is why we need a Savior. And for those who would humble themselves and repent and call upon the name of Christ... There is eternal life to be inherited 
not because of our merit or our love or our doing, but because we have been covered by his perfect blood shed out of perfect love. Not because we were born into a family and because of our racial or religious heritage, but because we have been adopted through his mercy and his grace. We've been brought into that family through his blood, through the forgiveness of sins. Not because we were good enough, but because we've been forgiven. Listen, listen. Good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. That is what, that's what the Christian faith proclaims. That is what the Bible states with clarity and authority. And it's unique. There's no other religion that says that, that, that provides this hope that we can be forgiven for the imperfect love that we all know that we have. So, I'm going to ask you this morning, if you have never confessed your sin, your imperfect love, and you long to know, how, how, how can I know that when I die, I'll go to heaven? Here's how you know. You have to confess your sin and repent and call upon the name of the Lord, the one who is the gift, who loved you perfectly and loved God perfectly, that you might be forgiven. But please, please do not leave here today going on believing that somehow you're a good enough person and the people that you know are good enough people to get to heaven without him. You're not. I'm not. None of us are. We need a Savior, and he is Christ the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this arrogant, brash lawyer who asked the billion-dollar question, that you would have an opportunity to show us what is required? It's perfect love. And there's not a one of us who can do it. But you did it. You loved so completely that you were obedient even unto death. You loved us so completely that you sacrificed yourself and took upon our sin unto yourself that it might be redeemed and that we might be forgiven. And you extend yourself to us as a free gift out of your grace and mercy. But as with any gift, Lord, it, it just lies there if it doesn't get opened. I mean, we, we have been called to confess our sin and call upon your name and receive this free gift of your grace, of your love and mercy. You have fulfilled what we could not. And we are so grateful. We humble ourselves, Lord, and we confess our sin to you today. We just ask once again that you forgive us, that you cover us with your blood, that you redeem us and bring us home, that we would have a blessed assurance that this life is not all there is, and that we will go home to be with you and the Father forever. Lord, and I pray by that knowledge and by that hope and by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that comes to reside within us when we call upon your name, that you will send us out into this great mission, this great mission field where so many people are walking around every day thinking somehow that they're good enough, that good people go to heaven with so much fear because there's no standard to know how good is good enough. Lord, help us to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in his perfect love, in his name. Amen.